man, what a time of worship we've already had today. Uh, it's been so, so good and so rich. And um, uh, it's so good to be together to worship the Lord together. And I, I know I say this every single time I have the opportunity to preach, but I, it's on my honest heart and feeling. It's such a joy to, just to be together to worship. Well, I'm privileged to be in the Word uh, this morning to bring the Word to you. And uh, we're going to be back in our series on faith that works walking through the, the, the letter of James, the brother of Jesus, to, to the church. And my goodness, have I been convicted the last few weeks on some of these sermons. Two weeks ago, I, I've been hearing rumblings ever since Mark preached on gossip a couple weeks ago. And it's like everybody, I've heard this like five or six times, I don't know what to talk about with, with people now because I'm like, oh, is that gossip? Is that not? I don't want to speak ill. You know, and so it's so funny that, you know, and, and a good thing that we're that sensitive to it. But uh, it's been... It's been uh, really good for my own heart. I've needed to hear that truth unpacked. And so um, I I was talking to someone in the church this week about the last few weeks and the things we've been walking through, and they they made the comment that it feels like the Lord is preparing our hearts for what he's going to do in the days ahead. So all this hard teaching we're walking through, that he's refining us, he's sanctifying us, he's, he's getting us to the point that we can obediently walk through the things that he has for us. And the Lord has certainly placed difficult passages in our past the last few weeks. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, that is true again today. We have another fun passage to walk through, and uh, it's a joy. Today, I'm going to walk us through another one, Lord willing. Throw back to last week if you are here. We're, we're looking at James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Uh, read it with me, uh, but first, let me give you where we're, he- where we're headed as we read this. Our outline is extremely simple. It's extremely straightforward, and that's because the passage is, is, is good, because the passage is challenging. One, first, we're going to spend some time looking at who this is written to, because it's important to know who, who this is written to. Secondly, we're going to ask the question whether or not being wealthy is a bad thing. That's kind of a spoiler for where this passage is going. And third, we're going to look at what Jesus said and did as, he, as it pertained to this. So let's read this as we begin, starting verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and you will eat. You and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Thanks be to the Lord who has given us his word today. Every single word in this book, everyone, even the difficult ones, are profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete. That's that's from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And that's true even of passages like this one here. And after seeing the passage, a pertinent question would be, have you ever gotten bad news? Because this was certainly bad news for, for some people. And I'm talking about troubling, life-changing bad news. I, I know most of us have, have had a moment in our life like that. And, and that's what James has just issued here. He has rendered judgment in an old-school, literally Old Testament prophet kind of way this morning. And we're going to see that. Last week's sermon began a portion of James that, that cautioned against and brought correction against 
how we can so easily, uh, without even thinking about it a lot of times, act as if we are the sovereign of our life instead of God being the one who is sovereignly in control of our life. We make plans without ever thinking about God or, or considering his sovereignty. Uh, we, we live in a way that, that, that says we're not actually the vapor that Scripture tells us we are, when in fact we are. Our lives are like a vapor. In light of eternity, we're just a puff of air, it's just, and it's gone. And here in this passage, we're faced with the reality of how futile it is to use our resources in the same exact way without ever thinking about who God is without once giving thought to the Lord, assuming you and I are the ones who make the decision on how our resources are used, on how our money is spent, on, on the things we accumulate or not accumulate, as if we are the ultimate sovereign and not God. Financial resources and material possessions can be the end goal of our lives, and that is a trap that leads to destruction, as we're about to see. So, Let's do the hard work this morning of unpacking this, this passage, and let's just uh, let's walk through it a bit. I'm going to raise this because it was a little low. Sorry, Claire and Johnny. It's going to mess you up later, I know. Sorry. Uh, let's, let's walk through this. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you. When you read the Bible, it is crucial, especially when it comes to letters in the New Testament, it is crucial to know who it's being written to. Who is the audience? Uh, th that is especially uh, pertinent to the context and it, because it helps us to understand what the author's intent was. It's one of the most basic questions we are asking when we approach the text. Who is this addressing? And that's, that's crucial for us today because if we don't establish the who, then we can totally make some, some incorrect assumptions. So based on the context of what comes before this passage and what comes right after it, I believe this passage is addressing those who are not believers, particularly those who are wealthy, living around the time, the area of Jerusalem, uh, who use their resources for unjust gains. And most spe more specifically, because of the language and the fact that James was a leading figure in the church in Jerusalem, he's most likely writing to wealthy Jews in the surrounding area who have used their wealth to oppress Christians, to, to discriminate against Christians. And we're going to see that next week as well. So for this group of people, this is a warning that justice is coming. Whether you think it is or not, justice is coming. We need to know from the start today that, and hear me say this, that, that this isn't to all wealthy people. It's to those who use their wealth and resources for the purposes that are contrary to God. That's the whole point of this. Uh, to, to those who are consumed with selfish accumulation or, or abusing wealth. And we're going to unpack this a bit, but it's worth saying up front that wealth is not the issue. Uh, resources are not the issue. The issue is how they're used. It's the nature and the state of the heart. Jesus over and over and over again talked about actions, but really actions speak to what's in the heart. It's about our hearts. The issue is with the heart of those who misuse them. So the primary audience, that, that's the primary audience, but don't breathe a sigh of relief just yet. Uh, you and I are, are not off the hook. I, I know we're not in Jerusalem I know we're not in that day. We're not the direct re recipients of this. But because there is yet to be a time where the church was free of every sin of the surrounding prevailing culture, 
we all can find something from this passage. We can all take away something from this. Though this was primarily for those who were living completely opposed to God, not following Christ, and were easily trapped by, uh, by the things of this world, we also can be trapped by this same mentality, these, some of these same habits. We easily fall prey to making wealth or the pursuit of wealth or the accumulation of material things an idol in our lives. For the Western church, this is one of our largest stumbling blocks across the board. It's easy for me and for you to come in here, sing songs like we've sung this morning that are powerful, that are rich, that confess that this is not who we are, and then to walk out and live totally contrary to what we've sung, to what we've heard. We all can fall prey to that, every single one of us. We proclaim God's sovereignty here in this place and then walk out and act as if none of that means anything. Actually, I am in control of everything in my life. Like our greatest satisfaction is found not in Christ, but in the things of this world. So I'm going to say this up front this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you find that all we examine in this passage describes your life, I want to urge you that there is an answer to this. It is not hopeless. There is an answer, and Christ is the answer. And I want to point you to him today. This passage promises that there is nothing in the future but misery apart from Christ. But there is a way to find true satisfaction and true joy, and that is in knowing Jesus Christ, banking your life and all of your hope and all of your future on him. And church, even though this is a warning specifically to those in James' day, who were enemies of God, I want to challenge us all to examine the ways that our lives demonstrate some of these tendencies, just to be really honest this morning. Because even though our eternal destiny may be secure with Christ, trouble lies ahead for any of us who make material things in this world, world the center of our lives. I spent a long time trying to uh, meditate on this passage, as I normally do, uh, which you can imagine was pretty fun. Before I even took any notes or anything, just, just reading it and reading it and praying through it, and, and, uh, and, and it was like, man, Lord, uh, really convicting of how do I even approach this. And on the surface, it felt pretty bleak, to be honest with you. Uh, I was a bit saddened by that. But as harsh as we might think this passage is upon reading it, it's actually even more dire than we think it is. Uh, because in verse 1, James uses the words weep. He uses the word wail there. And he's, he's calling back to warnings from Old Testament prophets. When, I mean, he's literally doing that. He's speaking to a Jewish audience who are familiar with the scriptures. So he is calling back to days in the Old Testament where the prophet would pronounce, would pronounce that judgment of God is coming because of the hearer's rebellion. The prophet would then foretell the hearer's reaction to God's coming judgment, that Almighty God was coming to judge the hearer, and there was nothing they could do to escape. Therefore, what was in their future was weeping and wailing. To know the full impact, listen to a couple of these pronouncements. This is from Isaiah, and you can find many of these across Isaiah, but Isaiah 6, he says, Wail, Isaiah 13, 6, sorry, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Um, good news, isn't it? The prophet Amos uh, used this kind of language as well. Amos 8.3. In that day, the temple songs will become wailing. So even the worship is, is going to be replaced by wailing. 
This is the Lord's declaration. Many dead bodies thrown everywhere. Silence. Oof, man. Hear what Hosea pronounced in Hosea 7. Woe to them, for they fled from me. Destruction to them, for they rebelled against me. Though I want to redeem them, they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from their hearts. Rather, they wail on their beds. They slash themselves for grain and new wine. They return to me. So if we went on, which we could if we wanted to, we would see that in multiple places across Jeremiah, uh, across Ezekiel, Amos, and Zechariah, they all contain this kind of language. And my point is that these, were, these verses were not light and they, were not, they didn't speak of light and momentary affliction. They spoke of eternal judgment. And Douglas Moo talks about this in his commentary. He says, This background makes clear that the misery that is coming upon the rich refers not to earthly temporal suffering, but to the condemnation and punishment that God will mete out to them on the day of, God, of judgment. Moo goes on to talk about how the plural use of the word miseries there in that verse is not meant to talk about quantity, but about the severity of the degree of suffering that was in their future. This is certainly a warning for those who are not followers of Jesus. It's not meant to be a scare tactic, but it's meant to plainly, just very upfront, directly give a realistic picture to, to tell those who have not trusted in Christ the explicit truth, the gravity of the situation that's ahead. So as much as we want to talk about the abundant love of God, because it is abundant, as much as we want to talk about His grace and how rich it is, and it is rich, it is good, we have to also look at we have to come to grips with the fact that if we have never turned to Christ as the remedy to the problem that we all have of rebelling against God, against going against His ways and turning towards our ways, then we are on a path that is leading to eternal misery. We cannot escape that this morning as much as we would like to. So hear me today. It is not too late. If you find yourself in this situation, it's not too late. This is a warning that can be avoided. It's a diagnosis that there is a cure. The cure is turning and trusting in Christ. He's the Savior that every single one of us need, whether you realize it or not. We are hopelessly, we are desperately lost apart from Christ. But I also need to say something hard to those who profess to be followers of Jesus. Just telling you, this is not going to be fun for a second. If your life is marked by finding purpose in material things, if the pursuit of money, the, the pursuit of accumulating things and stuff and wealth is the central focus of your life, if it's more important than drawing near to Christ, then be very careful. If you find more joy in those things than in knowing Christ, I would strongly exhort you today that in, in line of what we talked about today, you need to examine your heart. I'll go one step further to talk about in line with how dire this warning is. If Because this warning is severe, I, I, it's calling us to be critical in this issue that if after examining your heart you're unwilling to turn away from those pursuits then I would urge you to consider whether or not your faith is actually genuine and that is hard that's not fun for me to say but I, I love you and I need to say that we all need to hear that and trust me I've done a lot of examination in my own heart leading up to this morning Jesus says this about this struggle he says that no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If any of us are unwilling in our heart to let go of the things of this world, to know Christ more and more, then I urge you extreme caution as you think about your faith in Christ. And, and listen, I, I've, I've been, just to be transparent, I've struggled over how hard to press on this this morning because I know many of you this morning are sensitive to, to this you're sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit. And the last thing I want to do is to bring undue guilt, undue shame, undue pressure upon you. So if you find that you are under conviction, that's actually a good thing. <laughs> that's that You can lean into the Spirit working in your heart to prove that, man, God is actually working in my heart. My spirit, my, my, my faith is genuine. Neil mentioned a minute ago that, that yesterday, author and pastor, theologian Tim Keller passed away. And uh, I never met Tim Keller, but man, he had a profound influence on my life through his writings, through his ministry, his, his preaching. And uh, one of the things, I think it's fitting for us to remember, one of the things he once wrote was, was this quote, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Just as unrepentance is a sign of a lack of genuine faith in Christ, so actual repentance is a sign of the Spirit at work in your life. So today, we need to let this passage be an example of what not to do and to, to be a motivation to live counter to what we see here in this passage. So in light of this warning, I want to advocate for something. I want to advocate for the principle of stewardship. And this principle of stewardship looks at what, what, like what we talked about last week as we think, uh, thought about that phrase, using that phrase, Lord willing, being, you know, making plans and thinking, thinking we're in control of all things or, or, or saying, no, I'm going to do this, Lord willing. Uh, stewardship, as it pertains to this passage, takes that thought and it applies it directly to our possessions, to our finances. And it recognizes that the Lord has given us everything that everything that we have, and we are simply managers of the things that we have. We're not owners. We just sing that. It's your breath in my lungs. So we pour out our, you know, we just sing that. And then we sing the next song. You are worthy at all. For, uh, for, from you are all things, and to you are all th things. You, you deserve the glory. We just sing those songs. So it's not a foreign concept to us. Psalm 24 begins with saying this in verse 1. Uh, the earth and everything in it, the world and all its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. Everything is the Lord's. And this goes back to creation. It goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 26 to 30. On the sixth day of creation, after God's created all the plants, he's created all the animals, all the, the earth and the, ski, the, the sky, everything that we know, he then creates humanity. And listen to the account of creation and specifically highlight in your mind the purposes God gives humanity. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seeds. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
once God created everything, he made man, humanity, man and woman, the manager or the steward over all creation. The, the job of humanity was to oversee creation, to help it to flourish. Mankind was to administer, it was to administer God's ways in creation and take the lead in that. Listen to what R.C. Sproul wrote about this, this correlation between creation narrative and stewardship. He says, it's not that God created independent ownership of the planet to humankind. It remains God's possession, his possession. But God called Adam and Eve to exercise authority over the animals, plants, seeds, rivers, sky, and the environment. They were not to exercise authority like a reckless tyrant who has a carte blanche to do anything he wants. For God didn't make Adam and Eve owners of the earth. He made them stewards of the earth who were to act in his name and for his glory. Now, this principle of stewardship refers to the purpose in the passage in Genesis 1. But as we overlay it over this purpose that we're talking about of finances and accumulating things and that we see in James chapter 5, we apply the principle of stewardship specifically to those areas of our lives. And God has given you the resources that he's given you in order to fulfill his purposes. Regardless of what some may say in the world, it's not because of how good you are or how much faith you are. It's for his purposes that he has given you the things that he's given you. And you may be in your heart right now pushing back and say, TJ, that sounds all well and good, but I worked for every single thing that I have. I spent my own money on the things that I own. It's my money and I can do as I like. Or, or I've worked hard. I've studied hard. I've spent years preparing for this moment. And everything I have is because of my hard work. And I would push back on that sentiment just a bit to the point and point to the very life that is within you, the very breath that you are breathing right now, the very mind that you are using to think the thoughts that you are thinking right now. All those things are a gift from God. So the ability to do the things that you've done are a gift from God. The talents that you have are a gift from God. All of those things. The air isn't yours. It's God's. All of that was given to you, and he enabled you to have those things that you have. Everything is his. We are only managers of those things. So are you living with the mentality of a manager or of the owner of the things in your life? Because if you're a manager, then the idea of being generous for the sake of the gospel, giving things away for the betterment of others, loving your neighbor, not just in your words, but actually sacrificially through your actions and your things, that's actually a logical thing. It's a natural thing because of the love that we have experienced from God. It's a reflection of the opposite of what we see in James chapter 5, 1 to 6. Look at how those pursuits for wealth and accumulation of the focal point of life end. Look at how they end in, in verse 4 of James chapter 5. This is, look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. The outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So your purposes have been this. Your purposes has been your own living in luxury to... To, to indulge yourself. You, and, and the things that you've done have, have led to you in unjustly persecuting people, not fairly paying workers, but excluding others from those things that are rightfully theirs. Letting your life be governed by the pursuit of the accumulation of wealth and, and the accumulation of material things can easily lead to these kind of activities. You may not even start off there, but it leads there. It opens the door to the mistreatment of others out of greed. 
It creates the illusion of self-sufficiency when in reality you're a picture of a fattened calf who's been prepared for sacrifice and feasting. The calf seems happy right up until the end. That's the thing. It's had a great life right up until the end. It doesn't even know it's on its way to destruction. Man, what a picture. In its bliss, it has no idea that what's ahead is, is doom. Instead, being a good steward means living with a generosity that is rooted in the gospel. About regardless of how much you have, how much you own, how much you make, being open-handed with what you have in order to make much of God, in order to love others well. Stewardship and gospel-centered generosity should be logical if what you have are just resources from God for you to manage and steward. If you're the manager, being open-handed with your material possessions is natural. But if you find this is hard in your heart this morning, if you recoil at this idea and you're close to this idea of using your resources and possessions for the sake of the kingdom, then I would again would tell you that that's a red flag this morning. If you find that it's more the norm to give less to the things of God in order to pursue the desires of your heart, I urge caution. Let's keep looking at the passage this morning. Look at James 5, verse 2 and 3. It says this, Your wealth has rotted. Wow. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. And, your, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. The, the concept of, of stewardship and being generous for the sake of the gospel was something Jesus had a lot to say on all throughout his ministry. Uh, and it's amazing as you think about this letter in James, and I, I found this fascinating. So there's, there's a lot of evidence that would suggest that this is one of the very first things written in the New Testament, pretty early on after the, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And I mean, Mark's gospel, which was the very first of the four gospels that were written, it, it, it was written early, but James sees, seems like it was even predated that. And, and the reason that's important is because of what we find in verses 2 and 3 in this passage. Even though James's letter predates the gospel accounts, James is still quoting directly from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which means the, the early church, even before they had a written copy, it, written copy is extremely important, but before they had a written copy, they had the apostles there faithfully teaching the church what Jesus had, had taught and communicated. And they, they, were in, they were encouraging the church to be about these things. So listen to what Jesus taught about this subject in Matthew 6, 19 and 21, because it's going to sound familiar. He says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where, neither, where, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is followed up a couple of verses later by what we already heard about serving two masters. And, and we think James is harsh in this passage, but really he's quoting Jesus here. We think of Jesus being loving, peaceful, never getting upset, except for that one time in the temple when he was holy anger. But the rest of the time he's even killed. Jesus was, man, he had some really hard things to say about this. He, he's making the point that we're so often trapped by the pursuit of things that are worthless in the sight of eternity. In light of eternity, material things are worthless. 
Jesus says that, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Yes, James' original pronouncement was to those who were abusive with their wealth and opposed to the things of God. But let's be clear today, it doesn't matter how much money you make or where you fall on the socioeconomic ladder, materialism can easily be a struggle for every single one of us. It can even be an idol at worst. So the lesson for all of us, regardless of what your bank statement says, is this. Don't forget, we said money's not the, not the, the sin here. It's not the evil thing. It's actually the, our heart and how we use uh, money. Today's passage is far more, far more about the heart than it is money. So where is your heart rooted today? Do you get more excited about the newest iPhone coming out than you do the things of God? Does finding a sale at your favorite store or shop get you more excited than discovering something new in God's Word? Do you find your heart recoiling from the idea of giving away what you have for the sake of others or for the sake of the gospel? Again, regardless of where you stand economically, regardless of the amount that you have, we are all prone to materialism. We're all prone to the temptation of accumulation and because we're all prone to finding satisfaction in stuff, in money, instead of in God and walking and knowing with God, walking with and knowing God. Jesus is literally talking about financial resources when he talks about treasure, but I pose it this way. What are you treasuring today? Is it Christ or is it the things of the world? And if you want a clear answer to this, all it takes is going back over the last several weeks and looking at your bank statement. Because usually we invest financially in the things that we value the most. What do, what do your finances say about your heart? Therefore, Jesus is our standard today. And I mean that both in terms of his words and in his example. His, his words are always our standard as we measured our lives. But are the ways that I spend my resources reflective of what he teaches? Do I demonstrate those two primary commands that we've been looking at a lot lately? To, to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my mind, and to love my neighbor as myself. Do, do I use my material possessions to love God more and to love my neighbors more as I love myself so that my neighbors actually will love God? But consider who Jesus was and, and, and is as, as he said these words. Jesus is an idealist. It's not like he has some utopian thing that's unattainable. He doesn't advocate for things that we can never reach. Jesus also isn't someone who doesn't practice what he preaches. He isn't someone who's so far removed that he can't understand the realities of your situation. Jesus left the perfection of the glory and grandeur with the Father and the Spirit in heaven. He stepped out of a place of unimaginable splendor to come to us as one of us, to live in this broken world amongst us. He entered our brokenness. And even in his life on earth, he lived open-handed with his possessions. Listen to what one guy wanted to follow him, and this is what the, Jesus responded and said, you can follow me, but you need to know this. In Matthew 8, 20, Jesus told him, foxes have dens. And the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was itinerant so that he could share not just life-changing truth with people, but eternal destiny-changing truth with people all over the place. And Jesus could have lived a life of luxury. He could have lived a life of privilege by the world's standards. But he demonstrated this principle of stewardship by continually using all that he had and all 
that he experienced as a means of obedience, as a means of making much of God in his life. So I want to close this morning by thinking about Christ and then examining our, our lives in comparison. Jesus lived out the full experience of this life. He died a sacrificial death brutally for you and for me. He was raised to victory to purchase you. And because he did all of that, you and I do not have to settle for the things of this world that make big promises but never deliver. The idols we pursue are a cheap substitute to what God offers us. So regardless of your situation today, I ask you this question. Is your life marked by gospel, generation, gospel generosity or your wealth and your resources? Do you live as a steward of the resources you have for the sake of God's glory and the gospel? In connection with this, I'll ask again what we looked at a few months ago as we talked about sacrificial giving. If DBC is your church, are you contributing to the life and the ministry of the church? Are you giving towards Ridgery? We're so excited about with the concrete going down. How much time have you spent in prayer over those two areas of your life? I know we all have different situations, and I very intentionally did not suggest an amount or a percentage or anything like that. I'm more trying to challenge you to consider your resources to allow your actions to say that you are a steward of the things that God has placed under your custody in these days. So maybe you're hearing all this today, and it's apparent in your heart as you hear all this that you have not put God first in all of this, that you've actually never trusted God at all. If that's you and you've never trusted Jesus as the way of being right with God, there's an answer to that today. I would love to talk to you after the service today to unpack that more of what we've been talking about. Let's talk after the service during the coffee and the tea time. But maybe you've heard all of this, and even though you're a follower of Jesus, the Lord has graciously exposed some things in your heart and some things in your life, particularly in how you think about finances and material possessions. I urge you, bring that before the Lord this morning. Talk to me. Talk to someone else who will eagerly pray with you after the service today about the struggle. As usual, as we go into the coffee and tea time, um, the challenge is let's, let's make this a significant time, not a time just to talk about weather, just to talk about fleeting things. This, I've been so encouraged over the last several weeks to see places throughout the room where people are just spontaneously gathering for prayer, praying for the issues in one another's lives, encouraging one another, talking about the deep, significant things. So let's do that. Make it a time that's more, uh, more important than just the weather. So if you're struggling this morning in some other way, talk, let's talk about it. Let's pray through it. If it's, if it's an issue of you need healing, we believe in a God who heals. We, we can't guarantee that, but we believe that he can and that he, he will. Let's, let's, let's pray for that. If there's an issue that you have, let's, let's pray over those things. We're going to respond this morning by singing and through partaking in the table. And uh, as we come to the Lord's table, I want to say that this is for those who profess faith in Christ. If you have trusted in Jesus as your way to be made right with God, then we invite you to partake in this table. But if you've never taken that step, we ask you to abstain from that this morning. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took the bread and he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the end of the meal, he raised the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so friends, this morning, as we partake of this, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, 
let's remember that this cup, this bread, is a symbol of our freedom from those things in this life. It's a symbol that we actually can pursue greater things because of the sacrifice that was made for us. We have been sanctified. We are continually being sanctified. Let's delight in that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that even when it's hard and it's difficult, it's still so good and rich and we need it. Let us apply these things to our lives, God. Make us a people who are generous for the sake of the gospel. Thank you for the things that you give us. Help us to be good stewards of them. Help us to be wise. Help us to be reflective of your character and your goodness and your desire to love all peoples of the earth through the things that we have. We give our lives to you, including our resources, our material possessions. We give our desires to you. Help us to find satisfaction in you and you alone today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.